Hello and welcome to Fantastic Fights, the podcast about a middle-aged man playing adventure game books out loud on the internet. That middle-aged man is me, Hieronymus J. Doom, and this episode we're playing Spectral Stalkers, book 45 in the long-running fighting fantasy series. If you're enjoying this show, why not consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash hjdoom. Patrons receive a bevy of role-playing material and no less than four game books written by my own fair hand and also the equally fair hand of my husband. I am grateful as always to those who have put their hand in their pocket to support my nonsense and I'm in the early stages of sketching out a new game book and should have more to say about that in the coming months. Spectral Stalkers is another book I know nothing about beyond being vaguely aware of the cover. That's probably because the cover art is by Ian Miller and it's a typically hallucinatory affair with a purple demon flying down towards what seems like a steampunk shepherd in charge of a flock of robot sheep. It's gloriously baroque, and if I have a criticism, it's that nothing inside the book can possibly live up to the strangeness of the cover. Spectral Stalkers was written by Peter Darville Evans. This was his final book for fighting fantasy after the excellent Beneath Nightmare Castle, and the solidly entertaining Portal of Evil. I'm really hoping he manages to go out with a bang. Internal illustrations are by Tony Huff. How? If I was a proper journalist, I'd have looked that up. But I didn't, and I'm not. Um, A quick glance suggests that Tony Huff, let's go with that, has done a decent job. The art seems very dark and depressive, and hopefully that will tie in with the mood of the game nicely. Let's take a look at the rules. The rules are pretty standard here. We've got skill, stamina and luck, all present and correct. Uh, We're armed with a sword, a full purse, although exactly how full that is isn't specified, and two provisions. Yes, only two provisions. The introduction darkly warns that you are unaware of the nightmare you are about to enter and are thus not particularly well prepared and that is a nice touch. There is an additional mechanic which is your trail score. The titular spectral stalkers will be trying to hunt us down and we'll be following the spore which is left in the ether. Uh, The trail score starts at zero and rises over the course of the adventure and you can test your trail score by rolling 3d6. If the total is equal or more than your trail score you remain undetected. If it is less than your trail score then the Spectral Stalkers have found you, and I suspect that means bad things will happen. I have rolled up a character. I've decided to call them Marshmallow Spoon Clatter, because I think that sounds like a suitably heroic name. They have a skill of 11, a stamina of 20, and a luck of 8. Without any further ado, let's play Spectral Stalkers. Background And the background is nice and short, which is always a bonus as far as I'm concerned. Signs and portents, wheezes the old fortune teller in a voice that seems to rumble from within the folds of his moth-eaten cloak. There are signs and portents here. The cards will speak the truth for you, young warrior. I feel it. You are beginning to wish you had never ventured into this dark and smelly tent. The raucous shrieks of music and laughter of the fairground sound dim and distant, even though the grubby canvas of the fortune-teller's tent is the only thing that separates you from the merry-making crowds. 
You could be outside in the sunshine, enjoying the midsummer fair instead of waiting in the half-darkness for this ancient half-elven charlatan to start his card-reading act. A gust of cold wind swirls around you without disturbing the smoke that clogs the air. Suddenly apprehensive, you shiver. The fortune-teller seems momentarily alarmed, but then clears his throat and begins to turn over the cards one by one. Each disc of thick parchment bears a faded picture. The first few are familiar. A shining gemstone, a tramp with his meagre belongings tied in a bundle, a skeleton wielding a scythe. The fortune-teller's explanation is equally ordinary. The usual patter about a great treasure and going on a long and difficult journey, and the threat of terrible danger. Since when did your life as an adventurer contain anything but treasure, travel and danger? You regret giving the old half-elf a gold piece. You now have only eight left in your purse, and there are many more stalls to visit before nightfall. So, that answers one question. We have eight gold. Then you notice that the fortune teller has stopped mumbling. He is staring at the card he has just turned over. His hands are shaking. The face of the new card is completely blank and slightly luminous. At last he manages to stutter. It, it, it isn't possible. None of these cards is blank, but if this is so... This card represents your destination, soldier. I fear for you. Why? What does it mean? Where is my destination? Not in cool, wails the fortune teller. Not anywhere in this world. You will travel further than any man can imagine, with a perilous burden and a dreadful pursuit at your heels. Go from here. The storm approaches. Prepare yourself. You will be plucked from this world ere long. You step outside to find dark clouds racing across the sky. The crowds are dispersing and the fairground folk are struggling to secure their tents against a rising gale. The paths across the fields to Neuburg are thronged with townspeople scurrying home. You decide to shelter from the storm in the forest and you set out alone towards the dark line of trees. So that is the background. Really good. Dropping you into the action and setting up the stakes and giving you a little hint about what might be about to occur. I am intrigued. It's very mysterious. I like it. Nicely written as well. Peter Darville Evans, generally a solid prose stylist. So, uh, section one. You hurry towards the forest beneath the billowing black clouds that have turned daylight into dusk. There is a sudden flash of blinding light. You expect a crash of thunder, but instead there is an eerie silence. Then you see something falling out of the sky, tumbling and fluttering like an autumn leaf. It lands with a thump on the path ahead and you run towards it. It is a winged creature unlike any that you have seen before, and it is badly hurt. Its silver, gossamer-thin wings and its bright robes have been torn into tattered shreds. Its small, humanoid body bears grievous wounds. It stirs as you approach and stares at you with huge, round eyes. With its last reserves of strength, it holds out to you the bundle that it carries and tries to speak. Stranger! 
I am dying. I, I have failed. Take this burden from me. Take it. Archmage Globus. He must. Too late. I am dying. Take it. And beware. The spectral stalkers. The creature dies. There is a picture of the creature falling out of the sky. It's pretty good. It's really good, actually. Um, there's a nice sort of winding path leading to the forest, which sort of frames the centre of the picture and the creature itself with its tattered wings and agonised expression is uh, falling out of the sky, dominating the top third of the frame. I think it's really good. You pick up the bundle. It seems to be a hard ball wrapped in a cloth. Will you put the bundle in your backpack and continue on your way, or unwrap the cloth and look at its contents? I will unwrap the cloth and look at its contents, because if I'm going to be acting as a uh, Deliveroo rider for this spectral delivery boy, I want to know exactly what it is that I am delivering. You place the bundle on your knees and unfold the cloth to reveal a glowing sphere, not much larger than your fist. At first you think it is made of glass and transparent, but you peer into it and realise that it is made of nothing, or rather many things, countless things. You see oceans, deserts and cities, suns, moons and stars, animals and people, and many things that you cannot recognise. You look and look, and the sphere seems to expand until it is surrounding you. Then it shrinks to its former size, and you are no longer in the countryside near Neuburg. You are in a vast building. On all sides, corridors stretch away as far as your eyes can see. Every wall is lined from floor to ceiling with shelves, and every shelf is full of books. In front of you is a desk over which hang two signs. One says, Silence! and is completely unnecessary, since there is not a sound to be heard. The other says, inquiries. There is a little brass bell on the desk. You cover the strange sphere again and put it in your backpack. Will you now set off to search the strange building, or ring the bell? I feel as though the silence is a clue that you shouldn't ring the bell. So I'm going to take it as yeah an instruction not to ring the bell and instead I'm going to go and search the strange building. I mean to be fair the building is a library and I love libraries. The library seems to extend limitlessly in all directions. No matter how far you march along any corridor it still stretches away from you as far as you can see. The only interruptions in the endless lines of books are the sporadic gaps between the shelves where cross passages and stairways lead to other corridors. Occasionally, the silence is broken by the distant echo of voices or footsteps, but you meet no one. Sometimes you pause to examine the volumes on the shelves, but only very rarely do you find one that is written in a language you can understand. Eventually, you plod down a staircase and find yourself at a point where four corridors meet. You have lost all sense of direction, but this crossroads looks very similar to the place where you arrived in the library although there is now no inquiries desk. You choose one of the four corridors. 
and we get a choice of four interestingly they are not given uh, cardinal compass points uh, which is a really clever way of highlighting that we've got ourselves all turned turned around we don't know which way's up which way's down yeah it's a little thing but it really does does help sell you on the idea that you're lost it's better not be a maze if we've got a maze early doors i will be furious uh so four corridors um i'm going to assume one of them must have been the one i came down uh which is interesting because that's given as one of the options for going down so I'm st it feels as though there's something non-euclidean going on here so i guess i'll just take the first corridor um the first paragraph exit you walk for hours between the never-ending bookshelves in the distance you see a notice hanging from a chain that disappears into the darkness of the ceiling. As you approach you can make out the words lost property and the symbol of a hand pointing downwards. When you reach the notice you see that a gap between the bookshelves contains a narrow staircase which descends from the corridor. Do you want to walk down the stairs or continue along the corridor? Well this is more interesting than a corridor so we will walk down the stairs and all sorts of things in lost property. As you descend the stairs, you hear a rhythmic clanking. You stop in amazement as you see what seems to be a moving suit of armour with a square head and flashing eyes climbing the steps towards you. It stops, elevates its metal head and speaks in a voice like iron rubbing against stone. You're lucky you caught me, it drones. I was just going out on my rounds. Are you lost? You have come to the right place. Ha, ha, ha. Follow me this way. The metal man turns and leads you into a cellar full of junk. At a glance you see hats, cloaks, boxes, parcels, weapons, scrolls, purses and hundreds of unrecognisable objects all jumbled together in a heap. Black things like bats on sticks hang from hooks in the ceiling. There are caged animals, statues, chairs, a clock, and a doorway on whose lintel is engraved the word exit. My name's lost property, the metal man continues, seeing as that's what I am. Where I come from, I was domestic robot number 45B, but there is no call for domestic robots here in Limbo, so I live down here and keep the library tidy. Look at all this stuff I've collected. Do you need anything? Maybe we could do some business. Uh, do we want to trade with the robot or go through the exit doorway? I, I think we'll trade with the robot. Let's see what this robot has for sale. I hope he takes gold pieces from Cool. As um, I don't really have anything else other than this sphere cool to get a robot a little bit of science fiction thrown in um i genuinely thought we were completely done with science fiction stuff in fighting fantasy but it turns out not and that is genuinely a nice surprise i'm not interested in weapons intones the robot i've got more swords than i know what to do with money is no use to me either what have you got you bring out your two portions of provisions and with some reluctance you uncover the small sphere, its surface now dull and cloudy. The robot merely glances at it. So you're the bearer of the Aleph, he says. You'll find there's powerful people searching for that. 
food that's of interest. Not for me, of course, I never touch the stuff, but for my hungry little pets. If you have lost your sword, which I haven't, the robot gives you a replacement. Deduct one portion of your provisions and restore your skill to its initial value. He also produces a glass disc with a handle and one of the hanging constructions of wire and cloth. He calls them a magnifying glass and an umbrella and explains how they will work. He will exchange them for one portion of provisions each. You then ask the robot how you can leave the library and he points to the exit door. So, do you want a magnifying glass and an umbrella? Uh, sure, why not? We'll cross off two portions of provisions. Hopefully the uh, little pets enjoy their chicken tikka masala and their uh, Bombay potato. Who knows when an umbrella and a magnifying glass might be useful. There's a vague sense of a kind of Lucas Arts point-and-click adventure to this, I have to say. The kind of the weird vibe and the strange items that may turn out to be useful. Um, hopefully there'll be some way in which I can combine a magnifying glass and an umbrella to solve a puzzle later. That would feel kind of awesome. So we go through the exit. On the other side of the doorway you stumble down a step and into a vaulted corridor. At the other end is a doorway identical to the one you'd just stepped through. A counter runs along one side of the corridor and behind it is a room containing rows of empty hat stands. Asleep on the counter is an old dwarf. He opens one eye as you approach. Good day, I suppose, he grumbles. And I hope you had a fruitful visit to the library in Limbo. Don't bother to tell me, I don't really care. If you left a cloak or a hat on your way in, don't try asking for it. This is the way out, and I haven't got anything of anybody's. There's the door from nowhere to somewhere. But to where exactly, you ask? Exactly anywhere you like. Of course, if you want to go somewhere particular, it helps to think about it while you're walking through the door. You stride to the doorway and step across the threshold. Do you fill your mind with thoughts of your home world? Or do you try and imagine the ziggurat world? Or do you think about your mysterious burden, the Aleph, and rely on its influence to choose your destination? Um, I guess we'll rely on the Aleph, see whether it... I presumably it knows where it wants to go. Um, I've not heard of the ziggurat world, so uh, uh, yeah, and going backwards feels as though it's probably not going to help. We will trust to luck a little bit. You are in an unlit tunnel. You can see nothing, and can feel only the cold, smooth stones on both sides. You grope towards the indistinct sound of chanting voices. The chanting becomes louder, urgent, and frenzied. You take one more step, the floor gives way beneath your feet and you are sliding helplessly down a chute and into flickering light. You land on a dais of rune-carved flagstones and, as you pick yourself up, you see that you have emerged from the mouth of a gigantic stone skull that forms one wall of the torchlit hall. The voices are suddenly silent. You turn and find yourself looking up into the fiery eye sockets of another skull, but this one is the living face of a giant warrior priest who howls with joy as he thanks his grim deity. And there is a picture of the priest. Again, very dark. He's kind of scratchy and heavily shaded. Kind of skeletal figure with a very, very exciting headdress surrounded by other equally grim-looking skeletal figures. They've got flesh. They're not literally skeletons. 
but they are very, very skinny. As I foretold, mighty Glund, you have given us an omen. This creature will be our victory sacrifice. I, Sizok the Devastator, will shed its lifeblood at the battle's end on the altar of a thousand vanquished foes. Warriors, can you now doubt our victory? To arms! So, two soldiers begin to climb onto the platform. Will you fight them, or wait for them to capture you, or try to escape by re-entering the mouth of the stone skull? I think we'll fight. Um, I feel as though I can take on two soldiers with my skill of 11. We will, we'll give them a good stabbing. You retreat towards the gaping mouth of the stone skull as the two soldiers clamber onto the dais and advance towards you. They are emaciated, almost like skeletons, with pale skin stretched tightly over their bones and eyes that gleam like their leaders. They move slowly but wield their battle axes with unnatural ease. One of them is almost upon you. You must fight. The skeletal warrior has a skill of nine and a stamina of four. And uh, as you fight, you are too preoccupied to heed the strange disturbance in the air above you. The spectral stalkers are beginning to recognise the patterns of your mental energy. Add one point to your trail score. Trail score now one. And for the first time this adventure, I'm going to roll some dice. I have defeated the skeleton warrior. Uh, it did reduce me from 20 stamina to 14, however, with some, um, yeah, truly exceptional rolling. But there's no time to rest on my laurels because if you defeat the first skeletal warrior, there is no respite. The second is facing you and more are climbing onto the stone ledge. You cannot fight them all. You must either surrender or try to escape by running into the mouth of the stone skull. I guess I'll try running into the mouth of the stone skull then. I don't generally like to go backwards, but needs must. You flee beneath the pointed slabs of stone that are the upper teeth of the enormous skull and find yourself in the dark cavern of its mouth. Looking back, you see the dull glow of the bony warrior's eyes. They seem reluctant to follow you into the mouth of their god glund. You breathe a sigh of relief, but you are not safe yet. As you become accustomed to the gloom, you see that the chute down which you slid is above you and out of reach, and both of the two tunnels at the back of the cave look dark and dangerous. Your pursuers, urged on by their leader Sizuk, are advancing hesitantly behind you. You choose one of the tunnels and trust to your good fortune. Test your luck. I have a luck of eight, and I roll a five. I am lucky. You follow the twisting tunnel aware of side passages and junctions, and soon you are blundering about in a black labyrinth of subterranean paths. At last you see light, the shape of a door outlined by a yellow gleam. You step through into a small room furnished as a study. Avoiding an area of the floor on which arcane symbols have been chalked, you move towards the log fire that is blazing in the fireplace only to awaken the red-robed old woman who is dozing in an armchair. She stares at you in horror before stammering that you should not be here in her workroom. You try to assure her that you mean her no harm, and she begins to relax. You explain that you are trying to escape from Sizuk the Devastator, and she smiles at you. 
drink this, she says, pouring a thick brown liquid from a bottle into a pewter flagon. This will restore your strength and calm your nerves. You sniff the liquid. It smells wholesome, like a good vegetable soup, and you drink it. The old woman, Glun's chief priestess, told no lies. The drink restores up to four points of stamina. It also relaxes you, and within a minute, you are completely paralysed. She summons a squad of skeletal warriors who knock you unconscious and carry you away. So we've um, regained four stamina, taking us back up to 18, but we have been both paralysed and beaten unconscious, which seems to me a little bit like overkill. Your head feels like an overripe melon, and your body is being shaken like a sapling in a gale. You come to your senses and realise that you are lying on the floor of a moving vehicle. You open your eyes. Towering above you is Sizuk the Devastator. His eye sockets blazing like beacons as he cracks a whip in one bony hand and brandishes a flaming longsword in the other. You are in his war chariot, in the thick of a bloody battle. The day is Sizuk's. His skeletal warriors marching forward in endless ranks cover the land like a flood. Like storm-battered islands, small bands of Sizek's enemies, humans mainly and some elves, die fighting to hold back the tide. A solitary, desperate elven arrow arcs across the sky and lands in Sizek's shoulder. He falls alongside you. The elven arrowhead is poison to him and he pleads with you to help him. If you decide to do so, and you have a bottle of corrective fluid, turn to one thing. You can also try and help if you have no fluid. Or you can try and finish him off and bundle him out of the chariot. So a lot of stuff happening in this adventure, um, which seems at best dimly connected to the actions that I'm taking. Um, but I'm going to finish him off. I mean, it seems like the simplest thing to do. The chariot is pulled by two black horses with red eyes and bronze armour. They are whinnying in confusion, pulling the chariot in tight circles and trampling the wounded under their hooves. Several elves fight their way towards you, but they cannot reach the chariot. The wheels, glowing with a pale luminescence, seem to terrify them. You can do nothing but cower in the chariot as the horses career across the moorland. Suddenly a wheel hits a boulder, the axle snaps, you and the broken wheel are thrown clear, and the horses drag the wreckage into the distance. You recover your breath and inspect the wheel. Its luminosity comes from the circular, rune-engraved bronze cover of the hub. The metal roundel is apparently dangerous to elves, but it causes you no harm. We have a roundel, which uh, I will elect to take with me. You scan the landscape. You are alone. You take the Aleph from your pack and lose yourself in studying its myriad moving pictures. It seems to expand and surround you. Roll a die. Okay, even or odd, basically. So straight 50-50, we get 5, which is an odd number. I quite like the individual elements of this. I do not particularly care for how loosely they are strung together. The Aleph's floating images condense into a glowing sphere that you hold in your cupped hands. You replace it in your backpack and look up. You are standing on a weathered stone table in the middle of an overgrown garden. You know at once that you are not on your homeworld of Titan. The sky shimmers like purple velvet, and floating in it are a vast pale sun and clouds like goose down. 
The garden's plants are like rambling roses, but with dark leaves and aromatic magenta blooms. They have invaded the lawns, climbed the crumbling walls, and embraced the carved figures of fabulous beasts that sit scowling on pedestals. There is a gate of wrought iron set into the wall, and through it you see sharp peak mountains and a grim fortress. The gate opens, a procession enters the garden. The people are humanoid, small, with pale green skin and green hair that rises in stiff spiral curls. They are wearing torn and dirty rags, but the leader has a fur-trimmed robe. With heads lowered, they approach the stone table, and the leader begins a solemn prayer for the return of his people's champion. At the end of his incantation, he looks up, and his jaw drops in astonishment as he sees you. Will you greet these people, or jump from the table and run out of the garden? There is a picture of the... Um let's say, some monkish-looking humanoids advancing through the garden. Again, it's really good. really like it. It's really dark and just beautifully framed. Um, do you know what? I'm really starting to burn through the goodwill that uh, Peter Darville Evans had built up with his previous books and starting to feel as though I just want to be as obstreperous as possible. So I'm going to jump from the table and run from the garden. The crowd of green-skinned people draws back as you run across the garden and out of the gates. Stop! shouts the robed figure. But you have gone. We must stop him. After him, Feliti brothers and sisters. Bring back our champion. There is a village outside the garden, and the dwellings are old and dilapidated, but you assume they are inhabited, and you turn away, racing across a desolate landscape of craggy hillocks and shrubby thickets. You turn to look at your pursuers and see the Feliti people running from the walled garden, and as they emerge, they change. Each one drops to all fours and with a wailing cry is transformed into a long, low hunting beast, like a giant weasel with green fur and a snout full of sharp teeth. You run on into endless grassy plains in which your pursuers are perfectly camouflaged. The giant sun is setting. You run until you are exhausted, and as you stop, you are immediately surrounded by a circle of filiti creatures. You can run no further. You must fight or surrender to the filiti. Well, again, I'm going to be obstreperous, and I'm going to fight, because I like the weirdness. I really do like the weirdness. But I do believe that weirdness in a game book cannot come at the cost of making the player feel as though they're not really involved in directing the story. The problem with creating a series of strange encounters like this is that it's very hard for the player to feel as though they're able to make informed decisions about what to do next because something really weird is going to happen regardless of what you do. And I think over a short distance, that's absolutely fine. If this was a choose-your-own-adventure book, I'd be praising it, I think, unreservedly for being really weird. Because part of the lore of a choose-your-own-adventure book is the fantastic possibilities, rather than, oh, can I treat this as some kind of game? But over 400 paragraphs, I think you are going to be treating it effectively as a game that you are trying to win. And it just doesn't feel as though it's playing fair with you on any kind of level. 
As you advance, the Feliti back away, baring their fangs and yelping. Individually, the creatures are no match for you, but it will be difficult to drive off the entire pack of them. In the fading light, the swaying of the tall grass shows they are circling you, and then the three largest of them come for you. The first, Filiti, has a skill of five and a stamina of three. The second, a skill of four and a stamina of five. And the third, a skill of six and a stamina of five. Fight them one at a time. But before each attack round, roll one die. If you roll a one to two, the first Filiti attacks you. On a three to four, the second. And on a five to six, the third. That's a neat trick. That's a really neat little combat trick. I feel as though you could do something more interesting with it than this, but randomly determining which you fight one at a time each round. Yeah, that's really cool. Anyway, we've got a fight. Shouldn't be too hard. I'm going to roll some dice. So that was very quick. Um, I rolled the first Feliti for both attack rounds and killed it in short order. And we're instructed that uh, as soon as we kill one of them, we have to move on. So, victory is mine. First Feliti dead. No stamina lost. Pretty good. There is a moment of silence. As the lean body of the dead Feliti slumps to the ground, the whistle of the wind in the tall grass sounds like the keening of a multitude of lost souls. Then, with a chorus of enraged baying, the entire pack of Feliti hurl themselves at you. You cannot kill them all. Your adventure ends here. So that feels pretty rubbish, to be honest. I kind of thought that they might back off once one of them was dead, run away and think better of tangling with someone. But apparently no. Apparently what they do is just straight up murder you. I'm going to tentatively say that I do not massively care for this as a game book. Um, I'm not going to invoke the Sausagey Finger bookmark rule on this occasion. I think we've probably seen enough. And I'm going to go away. I'm going to play it on my own time and see whether or not I change my tune when we come to the closing remarks, which for you will be coming in just a couple of seconds. Tatty bye. That was a shorter adventure than we usually do, but in my defence the book was really starting to get on my nerves by the time we finished. It should balance out because the next bonus episode looks like it's going to be maybe a bit longer than usual. The question is, did Spectral Stalkers continue to get on my nerves or did I come round to enjoying it once I'd spent more time with it? The answer is no, but maybe also yes. It's complicated. Let's start by talking about the structure of the book. You will always get the same opening and closing sections, starting in the Library of Limbo and finishing with a dash through the Evil Wizard's Ziggurat world. In between, you'll bounce randomly between a lot of little vignettes, tiny self-contained adventures that give the author a chance to show off his creativity. There's a lot going on with these little vignettes, and on paper, I quite like the idea. I've seen people compare it to Quantum Leap, being thrust into an unfamiliar situation and trying to make your way through it as best you can, but I think there's a more apt comparison in the early Doctor Who serial The Chase from 1965. That story has William Hartnell's Doctor and his companions fleeing through time and space pursued by the villainous Daleks who've created their own time machine. The adventure parallels the structure of Spectral Stalkers quite nicely, 
with the Spectral Stalkers as the looming threat constantly at your back, and the random movements of the Aleph paralleling the random movements of the TARDIS, which was barely under the Doctor's control at all in the early days of the show. Now, the author of Spectral Stalkers, Peter Darville Evans, was actually instrumental in setting up the New Adventures Doctor Who novel series in the early 90s, while Doctor Who was enduring its long hiatus, so I think it's a fair supposition that he might have been familiar with the chase. It's actually one of the most fun early adventures for the Doctor, so on paper it seems like a good choice to take for inspiration, but some of the elements don't actually work in the gamebook format, and this is a problem. The first issue is a narrative issue. In The Chase, the viewers get to see the Daleks as they pursue the TARDIS. One of the Doctor's companions even manages to stow away on the Daleks' time machine, and thereby learn some details of their nefarious plans, but also give them some much-needed screen time. Even though there's not much direct interaction between the Daleks and the crew of the TARDIS, they're on screen regularly, and they are always around as a threat. With the narrower focus of a gamebook on a single protagonist, usually, you can't easily get the Spectral Stalkers on screen at the same time as the player. Instead, the Spectral Stalkers occasionally try to materialise, and then generally they don't materialise. That's a problem because it makes them feel very remote from the action, and they rarely feel like the looming threat which they should be. With the mechanics requiring you to roll a whopping 3d6 against your trail score, you will see the Spectral Stalkers fail to catch you three times before they even have a chance of getting at you. And that means they're subject to the same diminishing threat problem as the Daleks themselves, whose continual failure to deliver on their plans for galactic conquest very swiftly eroded their aura of menace. I think there were ways around this. We could have seen the Spectral Stalkers doing stuff in some of the vignettes. A few Spectral Murders glimpsed from afar would have gone a long way to make them feel more present in the narrative. The trail score, too, should have been a more impactful mechanic. Even raising it by a single point ought to have been a real cause for concern for the player. As it is, they simply don't exert enough pressure on the narrative to avoid the second issue which is that the vignettes all feel kind of aimless, and more than a few feel completely pointless. This is tied into an underlying problem, which is that the narrative never gives you a clear goal, which explains why you would want to spend more than a few seconds in any new setting. You are vaguely told that you should be keeping an eye out for things that look like the Aleph, but that's never present enough in the narrative to give a compelling reason for staying in one place, particularly as the reason why you should be keeping an eye out for round things is just a bit mysterious. I was constantly wondering why I wasn't given the option to just pull out the Aleph and go somewhere else when things got hairy. You've got this MacGuffin that's a straightforward get-out-of-jail-free card, and then the narrative kind of forgets that it's always an option, and that's extremely irritating to me. You need to give the Aleph some kind of recharge cycle at the very least to explain why I couldn't simply have used it to escape the weasel people when they were chasing me, for example. Better would have been to make it clear that even though you can't control where the Aleph takes you, it always moves you with purpose, so that you will end up somewhere that there's something you can do 
to either stop or slow the spectral stalker's pursuit. That would tie in with a more dangerous trail score mechanic. The need to try and keep your trail score as close to zero as possible would give you a purpose in each and every location you visit. In my last gamebook, I had a somewhat similar teleportation mechanic, which had the player visiting various different planes, but I made sure to have an overarching goal of finding prizes, which, I hope, gave the player a reason to press on and to try and explore each location thoroughly. That's not really present here, or at least for me, it's not present enough. As I said, you do get told that there's artefacts which may be able to help you if you collect them. The problem is that there's seven of them, and most of them are useless on their own. You need to find all seven, and then hand them in to an NPC, in order to gain an advantage that will help you in the final sections of the gamebook. This wouldn't normally be a huge issue. We're used to having a magical shopping list for wise old weirdos by this point. The problem is that among the elephants crammed uncomfortably into this room are two related elephants pertaining to the randomness of it all. The first elephant, in this increasingly tortured metaphor, is the one that says you can't actually control where the Aleph takes you. The second elephant is all about the actual hand-in of the item-gathering quest, but we'll put a pin in that elephant for now and focus instead on the random movement. You can't do a scavenger hunt for magical trinkets properly if you can't control where you go. You need the dice to be really on your side to have even the ghost of a chance of getting all the bits you need. And then you need the dice to do you another solid and take you to the location where you need to hand them in. The fact that collecting round things is quite poorly signposted in the first place, and there's no real hint as to what they might be good for, that's one problem. There's a lot to be said for telling the player up front that Big Bad Bertha will only die if you assemble a complete 1986 Panini World Cup sticker album. It makes the stakes explicit. It might be predictable, but it provides a solid premise that the player can use to inform their decision-making right from the start, and I think that's something you generally want. Here, the vagueness is made much worse by the random movement. I could see it working if there was something to be found in every location, and you could reliably get to the hand-in point, but absent these two factors, it just makes the bulk of the adventure feel aimless. And I really can't emphasise enough how aggravating I found the random movement in this game. Although it's not likely, it raises the possibility of having the exact same adventure twice in a row if that's how the dice decide to fall. That feels antithetical to the whole idea of gamebooks for me, and it's taking away control and agency. I sort of get it as a fun twist on the traditional structure, but it never stops being frustrating especially when you want to try and complete your chores along the way. The book doesn't help matters by having more randomness baked into the meat of the vignettes as well. We saw a bit of that in the Skeleton Warriors section, where instead of choosing a tunnel to investigate, you make a luck test to decide which tunnel you take. There's more examples elsewhere as well. It all winds up feeling less like you're in charge than the book is in charge, and that just doesn't feel enjoyable to me. On one level, there's no actual difference between making a player roll a luck test to see which tunnel they take, 
and making them roll to see whether they fall into a pit trap. They're both consigning branching narratives to the whim of a dice roll. But I would say that one of these feels right and one of these feels wrong. It's like making picking a lock into a stamina check rather than a skill check. You can argue that they're fundamentally doing the same thing, but one reinforces the fantasy and one undercuts the fantasy. And there's too many occasions where this book undercuts the fantasy. There's a general feeling that things are being done to you rather than that you are doing things. It's something I'm perhaps overly sensitive to. I have a near Pavlovian response to feeling trammelled. It gets my back right up. Ask me to save the kingdom? I'll probably do my best to help. Tell me to save the kingdom and I'll reflexively try and get out of it, even if I like the kingdom. It's much less of a problem in game books when it shows an awareness that this constraint is a bad thing. Trial of the Champions is a really good example. I don't mind that opening where you're taken prisoner and forced to compete in bloody tests to find someone good enough to take on the new and improved Death Trap dungeon because the text understands that this is happening against my will and I felt confident that if I made it to the end, I'd get a shot at revenge. Crucially, the book doesn't expect me to feel good about being taken prisoner and put through hell, and it uses that to give the narrative heft, and it makes the stakes explicit right from the start. Spectral Stalkers just makes me feel like I don't have any control over the narrative, and it doesn't give me enough of a reason to play. And I have to say, actually finishing this one felt like a bit of a struggle. Now let's go back to that second elephant in the room, the one with the pin in it. If you somehow manage to get all the round things, you'll need to hand them in. And the way this is resolved involves my least favourite thing in all of game books, a maze. To be fair to Spectral Stalkers, this is far from the worst maze I've found in game books. The worst ones are the recursive featureless corridors with endless identical crossroads in them. This one does have a bit more going on and the author has actually provided a layout of the maze which appears on the inside cover. It's a nice little bonus but it feels to me like a tacit admission that mazes aren't actually fun in game books. The maze also gives you an option to turn it down which I'm also choosing to take as an admission that mazes are rubbish. The maze has a bunch of rooms with points of interest and a couple of good traps so that's a positive but honestly it's still a maze. And when you get to the end your reward is dealing with one of those awful smug superior beings manifesting in the form of an old man. You know the type, the Elminsters, the Yaztromos. The ones who are like Gandalf, with the exception that Gandalf doesn't make me want to punch him in the throat. When they cast Gandalf for the Hobbit and Lord of the Rings films, they struck gold with Ian McKellen, who managed to make him both prickly, but also enormously warm. The super wizards that litter game books and role-playing supplements always feel to me like they ought to be played by Ricky Gervais circa The Office. If I ever do a maze, a proper maze, in a game book, I'll be sure to have a section at the end where you can administer a really, really savage beating 
to the person squatting at the centre of the maze like a toad, just section after section asking whether you want to punch, kick or throttle the smug, self-satisfied Pratt in charge. I think these wizard and wizard-adjacent characters are so annoying because you know that at no point will they ever be vaguely threatened by anything in the narrative. At least Gandalf had to go base-jumping with a Balrog that one time. The Elminsters and Yaztromos of this world just sit around being pleased with their own cleverness and doing the absolute bare minimum to save the world while hogging the spotlight away from the actual protagonists of the story. It always feels like they could do a much better job of the adventure than you, and it's just they can't be bothered, and that is maddening. I said that the author recognises that you probably won't have all the bits you need to get anything out of the maze section, and therefore lets you skip it. He also recognises that since collecting the seven sacred round things is next to impossible, he needs another out for the player. There are a couple of items you can pick up on your travels which will make the whole gathering round things business completely unnecessary. On the one hand, this is much appreciated. The book would be beyond frustrating without these outs. But on the other hand, if you need to make a much easier solution to the intended path, that suggests to me that there's a problem with the intended path. In point of fact, you can beat the game without picking up any of the various items, which will get you past the solitary item check at the end. It will require a very difficult stamina roll, but it's doable more than 50% of the time if you rolled a really, really good stamina. In fact, you can go straight from the Library of Limbo to the final section in an example of one of the very few times you can actually control the outcome of looking into the Aleph. And if you've rolled a stamina higher than 20, that is probably the best thing to do. Just duck out of the whole nonsense with being bounced around space and time and get on with the job at hand. While I generally like the idea of being able to skip to the end, I think here it demonstrates just how big the structural problems are with the book that that felt like a more attractive option. This has all been very negative, but is there anything I can say that's laudable about Spectral Stalkers? Yes. In fact, there's a bunch of things I can say. On a basic level, it's very nicely written, with the clear evocative prose, which is the hallmark of good gamebook writing for me. Secondly, the artwork is excellent. I feel like Ian Miller would have been an even better fit for the internal work, if I'm honest, but Huff's work is scratchy and doesn't undersell the weirdness at all. And that weirdness is a real highlight. The little vignettes, the encounters, are perhaps inevitably a mixed bag, but Darville Evans really makes the most of the possibilities inherent in being able to do a bunch of surreal vignettes. Some of them are extremely memorable. Perhaps the most exciting elements for me are the science fiction ones. Despite the frequently low quality of science fiction fighting fantasy books, I was sorry to see them disappear completely and the author gives us a few little reminders of how fun pulp science fiction tropes can be. There's a map maker who bears more than a passing resemblance to Davros from Doctor Who, with really good art accompanying it, and there's a chance to tangle with a thinly disguised Robbie the Robot from 1956 camp classic Forbidden Planet. That encounter also does fun things with the combat mechanics, removing stamina entirely and turning it into a very swingy contest, 
where winning a combat round reduces your opponent's skill. There's a lot of nice little combat tricks on display here in what is generally a very low combat book. There's also plenty of more classic fantasy tropes on show between the bouts of high weirdness too, which provides a nice bit of contrast. A tavern might just be more sinister than it appears. We've already seen the skeletal warriors and the transforming weasel people, but you can also get caught up in a game that's sort of a cross between chess and go, only played with human pieces, which is one of those weird tropes that science fiction seems to love for some reason. That gives you a fairly straightforward logic puzzle to solve, which I don't normally care for, but here it broke up the action nicely. There are lots of these little encounters as well, which means that there's plenty of scope for having different adventures if you play the book again, and the dice will probably assist with that. Most of them are arguably too brief to be truly satisfying, but I have to admire the sheer amount of imagination that's been stuffed into this book. I also feel that the opening and closing of the adventure are pretty strong, and the close of the adventure is probably the strongest element of the book. Once you get to the Ziggurat world, there's a clear goal in mind, and the book actually lets you make your own choices. There's still plenty of surreal touches, but the fact that you can engage with them with an eye to the main chance does a lot to make it feel more satisfying. It's not especially challenging, but the final approach to the wizard's castle has plenty of good ideas in it. It hits that sweet spot of being bizarre, but not so bizarre that you can't make a decision based on the cues that you've been given. For me, that's the secret source in a surreal adventure, the ability to engage with things on terms that make sense to you. It's not something that matters as much in less interactive mediums, but I always responded better to the dream narratives of Lewis Carroll than the dream narratives of David Lynch. I like Lynch, but some of his work is quite impenetrable to me because I can't understand how the characters are making their decisions. Whereas Alice from the Lewis Carroll books is always trying to be level-headed about things, which gives me a way into the story. I find stories where I cannot grasp anything about the characters quite alienating, even if I do quite enjoy the sheer anything-can-happen vibe that you get with Lynch's best work. But I feel as though if an adventure game book presents you with a choice between painting the banana green or inflating the miniature bouncy castle shaped like Stalin's moustache, at that point you might as well toss a coin. There's nothing to really choose between them. I think that's fine in small doses, but probably doesn't want to go on for 400 sections. The finale, the showdown between you and the evil wizard, is extremely clever. I actually did a little laugh of delight when I worked out how to beat it. There's the item check just before you meet your nemesis, but the actual finale is just you and him and there's not a dice to be rolled at all. It's all on the decisions that you make. And the resolution feels like something that would be the perfect climax to an episode of Doctor Who. It's a celebration of hubris being undone by quick thinking and moxie. And it's a highly appropriate way to close out the adventure. So despite all the issues I've outlined with it, I actually closed the book having beaten it, feeling pretty happy. Um, I like the bits in Limbo at the start too. They're whimsical in a way that you don't always get in fighting fantasy, and that makes a pleasant change, especially given that I was expecting something much more horror-tinged like 
Darwin Evans' previous books. I was mildly furious that the silent sign isn't a clue not to ring the inquiries bell. That felt like a missed opportunity. Overall, I did not particularly care for Spectral Stalkers, and once I'd beaten it and thoroughly enjoyed the last act, my heart sank when I realised I was going to have to go back and really rake through it. And it's a shame because I've enjoyed Darville Evans' work in general and I had high hopes for this one. I think the reason I was disappointed was that I could always see a really good game book struggling to get out from behind a couple of genuinely disastrous design choices. Cut down the number of encounters, make them feel more impactful, give the player the choice of where to go and make it so that they have an actual incentive to explore every location for something, preferably something that will help keep the stalkers from catching up to them, and I do think this could have been a real classic. A shame it turned out like it did, but I would rather see something reaching too high and missing than just turning in something bland. And whatever else you can say about Spectral Stalkers, it ain't bland. That's all for this episode. I'll be back in early-ish March with another bonus episode when we're going to be looking at the first Way of the Tiger adventure game book. I hope you will join me for that. In the meantime, you can contact me by email at hjdoomretrofun, all one word, at gmail.com. You can also follow me on Blue Sky at hjdoom. Thank you very much for listening. Take care, and I'll see you soon.